from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Frankogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the eight attributes of successful sustainability execs. What is total impact valuation? Calling all entrepreneurs for climate action. And will Uber be more like Netflix or Blockbuster? We're binge-watching Planet Earth this week on 350. It's July 27th, 2018. Welcome to this week's edition of GreenBiz 350. Joining me across the USA in Midland Park, New Jersey, is GreenBiz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. I think we should start off with some congratulations that are in order. You, unbeknownst to certainly everyone at GreenBiz, in God knows what spare time you have between working and and singing uh, and doing all the other things you do, co-authored a book. I did. Um, and I was trying to keep it not secret, but out of, out of sight of GreenBiz because my work at GreenBiz is so important that I didn't want it to interfere. But uh, yes, I uh, co-wrote a book on well, entrepreneurship. Yeah, do tell. So it, it was uh, co-authored with a friend of mine for about 20 years. He is someone that I used to interview quite um, often when I was in the information technology game, if you will, his name is Christopher Lockhead, and he um, is probably the most unconventional marketing executive I've ever met. He has been a CMO at three different companies. He, he's technically retired, although um, he started a podcast uh, in about 18 months ago called Legends and Losers. He's just fascinated by the dynamics of of what it takes to to be to be a successful entrepreneur and that's what this this book is about it's about entrepreneurship and what it takes to be legendary so give us a little more flavor of the book you did uh, interview stories uh, how how is it organized what does it try to, uh, to to help us do so it's a it's a i would say it's a compact book it's it's a only it's just slightly more than 100 pages it's called niche down how to become legendary by being different and the, the main thesis is that um, you should not be competing. You should not be trying to compete uh, on someone else's rules like, hey, I'm going to offer lower prices than this guy, or that's a good category, I'm going to do this. You know, and, and you shouldn't be playing by someone else's rules. You should be uh, basically creating your own niche. And um, it's, this is sort of a philosophy that, that Christopher has subscribe to a long time. And I'll just give you an example of a big E entrepreneur that this, this, would, um, this philosophy would apply to, and that would be Facebook. So Facebook wasn't necessarily the first, quote, social network, end quote, but what it did was um, basically co-opt the category and design it into um, to something that basically everyone else now has to try to compete with. Um, and and as, a, as a result, over time, they um, were able to claim most of the sales in that category. Well, this philosophy applies equally well to small e entrepreneurs. So the, 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 the companies that are just starting up in your neighborhood, it could be a regional um, company like in your state, you know, even, even the local um, pizza parlor or a restaurant, you know, how do they distinguish themselves from all the other category uh, players in their neighborhood, if you will. 
So from, uh, from the Greenbiz perspective, it, the, the good news is it turns out there's tons and tons of great uh, clean tech and green tech entrepreneurs that, lo and behold, fit this philosophy. So um, one of my favorite examples, and, and you, you, you're very familiar with this company as well, is TerraCycle, of course, which has basically turned um, the concept of waste, quote, garbage, what we consider to be garbage into something that is very valuable. And their entire business model is, um, at least right now, we know that they have lots of different things in mind for the future, but they have managed to create a, a, a category out of dealing with um, what other everyone else considers to be garbage or waste and turning it into something of value um, for for brands all around the world. So, yeah. And, yep. and, and TerraCycle will be... We'll be talking more about them uh, this year and, and, and next year because there's some big things coming down from them as they've uh, turned that niche from uh, recycling, basically, or upcycling, perhaps, to uh, becoming a true circular economy company. And and, and that's, I think that when you create your niche, uh, you grow as things grow. And by the way, that's also the story of green biz as we've gone from uh, you know talking about the greening of companies into the clean technology space and the circular economy and a whole range of other things. So uh, we'll be running a an excerpt as we do every week or uh, for run a book excerpt every Saturday on green biz and we'll be running an excerpt uh, of niche down Heather Clancy's new book uh, about the TerraCycle uh, in the not too distant future. So look for that and for now Heather. Congratulations. Thank you so much. It's, it's a thrill. Um, we actually have a billboard in Melbourne <laughs> this week. So one of our friends uh, gave us a free billboard. <laughs> and you haven't, you haven't sent us a picture of that yet. I am about you, to. You, I got it this You need morning. to do that. We'll share it with the Green Biz team, and, and I'm sure everyone will be totally thrilled on that. <laughs> um, well, that's great. And let's move on to the Week in Review. Well, speaking of circular economy, let's start this week with a story uh, done by uh, David Rakowski, who's uh, with PA Consulting Group. Uh, and he's a management consultant talking about how retailers can compete using circular economy principles. In other words, what's what's the role of retailers? We know what the role is of manufacturers and waste collectors and, and cities and a lot of others in terms of closing the loop and keeping uh, material flows in play, uh, this thing called the circular economy. But what does it mean for retailers? So he he lays out some of the three of the uh, or four of the of the key points to to think about. Yeah, and this is in some respects um, <laughs> 2.0, take back 2.0, if you will. So part part of the role that retailers will play, of course, is helping um, get items back into circulation, if you will. Um, taking back items that could be put back into the, the, the production stream and um, helping companies like Apple and um, Dell uh, get, get back the products that um, they're going to be able to, to handle in a, in a circular world. So I think that's, for me, um, one of the things that, one of the ways that a retailer can play. I mean, we, and we've heard about, you know, all the things that, for example, Patagonia is, is, is one company that's, that's thinking about this, um, on a, on a very holistic level, how do they convince consumers? I mean, because part of it is, is about the consumption habits, right? Um, and, and how does a retailer reshape um, an expectations of a customer? And that, that's, that will be 
definitely a, a role a role that they'll play in the future um, and and actually hopefully even in the short term. Yeah, and because one of the key parts of the circular models is the consumer behavior piece uh, that companies can commit to doing all sorts of things, but if you don't engage your customers, whether they're consumers or, or, or B2B or institutional customers, uh, you're going to be limited in your ability to do things and therefore in your impact and therefore in the, the value creation that the circular economy can bring and, and figuring out how to engage customers um, and to talk, use the right language uh, to even talk about this kind of thing. Um, so he, for example, uh, in this in this piece, uh, David Rakowski says um, even small changes in language, such as moving from the term leasing, uh, you know, where you're basically leasing a product instead of buying it, you know, getting the experience instead of the physical ownership, but instead of describing it leasing, describing it as a club, for example, can create a far more appeal and, and ultimately uptake with with consumers. So lots of great advice in this piece. And uh, as as this stuff grows from uh, from uh, to back to your book, a niche business into a mainstream business, this is the uh, some great advice that'll help accelerate that model. Yeah. Uh, and I actually, just one other quick thing before we move on. I, I want, I'm curious to read about this Danish company, Viga. Uh, I don't know how that's pronounced. But, um, you know, they're taking the idea of, you know, what do you do with baby clothes? And they're turning it into a subscription model. I mean, like, how, how smart is that? Everyone does it. Um, and now they're actually doing it officially. And parents can really um, play a role in, there, in that. And, and it's not, a, it's, it's, again, goes to the behavior. Um, in the minds of parents, this is something they're going to do. And why not, as a retailer, jump in and participate? Yep. Well, one of the other great things that happened this week, other than your book coming out, is um, uh, our friend uh, and editor-at-large, Bob Langert, came back to the pages of Green Biz after taking a break to write his own book. Uh, he's got a book coming out uh, in January. It's called The Battle to Do Good Inside McDonald's Sustainability Journey. Bob, of course, ran McDonald's sustainability journey for, I think, 28 years until he retired a couple of years ago. And uh, is decided to to pull the, some of the really interesting and amazing things he did and the lessons that they learned uh, into this book. Uh, but Bob, uh, readers uh, will know, uh, remember, has been writing for us for uh, ever since he left. In fact, exactly since he left McDonald's, um, like I said, two and a half years ago. And uh, this time he comes back with this um, kind of a new series uh, in his uh, column called The Inside View. Uh, where he's going to be, you know, just sort of talking to one entrepreneur or one sustainability veteran at a time to sort of, you know, find out what makes them tick. But in the in the process of doing this and of writing the book, he came up with sort of the looking at what does it take to make a good leader in sustainability. And, you know, as he said, I was fortunate enough to see that firsthand how courageous trailblazers used all different leadership styles to produce significant, positive, sometimes transformational changes during his time at McDonald's. And so he said, I'm going to pick some of that apart. And in this piece that we ran this week, he observed eight common attributes, which won't go into all eight of them, but um, some of the things you would imagine around courage, conviction, cleverness, and contrariness, uh, and, and some things that don't even begin with the letter C. Uh, but um, it's really good good read, as Bob is. We're, we're so thrilled to have him back, and so I encourage you to check out that piece. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think my favorite 
one was contrariness. <laughs> if you want to make enemies, try to change something. But seriously, it does um, it does take a certain amount of um, being a little bit of a maverick, um, but but doing it cheerfully, as as he also suggests. Um, and Bob, we missed you. It's so great to have you back. Yep. And then uh, lastly, there's a great piece. Uh, I mean, Katie Fernbacher, our senior writer and analyst on the transportation and mobility side, wrote a piece called Will Ride-Hailing Players Uber and Lyft Be More Like Netflix or Blockbuster? And of course, I think most people you know, get the distinction. One is uh, a subscription service that... Uh, that became sticky enough uh, using data on personalization and simplicity and and frictionless, as they like to say in Silicon Valley, to hold on to consumers uh, as as markets shift and as uh, consumption habits shift. Blockbuster um, not so lucky or so nimble, um, and they sort of uh, became the Kodak of uh, of the of the moment or the the uh, Betamax of the moment for people old enough to remember that and 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 they didn't weren't able to pivot as the world went from uh, renting to streaming and so uh, i think it's a there's a, she talks about a number of other companies big and small in the uh, mobility space and I, I think some great good lessons here as well yeah and i think the thing to to focus on here and the the transition that she's really focusing on is the autonomy right to moving from traditional cars to self-driving ones and so the thing that she's studying is um, whether or not um, the, the Lyfts and Ubers of the world will be able to uh, really pull in the right kinds of technologies to, to be players in the self-driving world, um, as opposed to some of these startups that we see um, coming to place, such as Zook's self-driving robots. I mean, just lots of different models. And her, her column was inspired by some investments that... Uh, uh, Steve Jurvetson's making. Um, he's he's a, a well-known uh, investor in entrepreneurs such as Hotmail, SpaceX, and Tesla. And um, he famously missed the Netflix <laughs> opportunity, but uh, he's he's really thinking long and hard about now how how the ride-hailing uh, economy, if you will, will will make this transition into a world where there aren't necessarily drivers behind that that steering wheel, or frankly, for all that matter, whether or not there's even a steering wheel <laughs> in, in the vehicle. So great, great, great thought piece by Katie. And I think it's important to note that it's both uh, small players and there's a number of smaller niche players that are mentioned in this piece uh, and, and General Motors uh, uh, that is itself is going through some series of uh, really interesting pivots during this really interesting time in the world of transportation and mobility. So it will be interesting to see do these companies end up like Netflix or Blockbuster? We are about six weeks away from a major climate conference not far from here in San Francisco, uh, the Global Climate Action Summit. It's being convened by California Governor Jerry Brown in partnership with Michael Bloomberg, the UN Secretary General's Special Envoy for Climate Action. Patricia Espinosa, the Executive Secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, and Anand Mahindra, the Chair of the Mahindra Group in India. Uh, it's going to be thousands of people and hundreds of events taking place here. And around that, we're going to be talking a lot more about this in the coming weeks. 
but one of the first stories that came up is uh, from uh, a good friend of ours, Danny Kennedy, the managing director of the California Clean Energy Fund and the president and co-founder of the New Energy Nexus. Um, and they have just this week issued a, uh, a petition, a call to action for uh, entrepreneurs to take a stand. So, uh, Danny, it's nice enough to come by the 350, the Green Biz office, and uh, tell us about the Speedwell call to action. Hey, Danny. Hi, good to be here. So why another climate petition? What's the goal here? I think one of the goals is to get the innovators and entrepreneurs, the builders and founders and folk who start the companies that are driving the energy transition to have a voice at this summit. You know, it's time now that the energy transition has become apparently inevitable to start demanding more from our governments to either get out of the way, which is sometimes still necessary, or get on the bus and start driving this agenda faster. Because we all know we're going to go 100% renewable in California and beyond, ultimately. The question is, will we do it in time? And what we're calling for is more support to go faster sooner. So that's the Speedwell statement. So you're calling for at least uh, 1,000 entrepreneurs, investors, and operators of startup incubators and accelerators to sign this call to action. This is not what we usually think about big business, getting the world's largest companies on board, getting their CEOs to speak out. What's the sort of theory of change here for entrepreneurs to, to make a difference? Well, I think the big business is going to get on board too. And there's going to be a separate statement, I believe, out of the tech sector here in San Francisco, where they're largely centered. But our point is that entrepreneurs are actually the ones doing the innovation that we still need and, and driving the change process. So we feel that isn't reflected enough. It's sort of, you know, let's rely on the incumbents and the big institutional powers and the big corporates. Whereas, in fact, it's small businesses growing large that are going to deliver energy services to a billion people at the bottom of the pyramid, for example. You know, modern electricity and mobility will happen in Africa and parts of Asia that don't currently benefit from those things. That's going to be done by startups in those countries, you know, and they're the network of people we want to have sign on and have represented at the summit so that the governments of the world start getting serious about supporting us to do what we do and drive the disruption of end-use energy. I mentioned New Energy Nexus earlier, and, and New Energy Nexus uh, uh, or, organizes, coordinates, uh, links a, a, gr a group of, I want to say, 80 or so uh, incubators and accelerators around the world. Um, so what happens, talk a little bit about that population, and what happens if, this, uh, if you get the signatures, and where does this go from there? That's right. We've got that many incubators and accelerators in about 25 countries around the world. And we want to bring the managers of those spaces and some representative entrepreneurs and have them in the mix of these conversations where they're generally underrepresented as a voice. And we are presenting to the formal delegates at the Global Climate Action Summit this Speedwell call to action and pressing on them the case to abandon subsidies to fossil fuels. You know, it's time to stop that nonsense. That's, that's perverse in the true sense of the word get onto innovation R&D funding, support startups, do commercialization in your countries, help incubators take these companies to market so we can spread these modern energy services and climate solutions. That's what it's all about ultimately for so many of the people involved in the grassroots bubbling up of startups in this space are driven by a passion to solve the 21st century's biggest problem. And that's what we're calling for help to do. So everybody on, on this podcast uh, can 
you know, knows about Tesla and some of the, you know, uh, other solar and, and renewable energy companies that are out there that started off as, as small startups, venture-backed, uh, pr- probably less so outside the U.S. Can you tell, tell us about uh, a startup in, in the developing world that, that has uh, either has or is poised to make a big difference? I, you know, I, I can think of many, you know, doing Pico grids in Cambodia, like Okra Solar or an energy service company that started basically servicing the public buildings of India and has now grown into a $500 million behemoth that's doing acquisitions of ESCOs in Europe. Um, you know, we see more innovation in Senegal than Silicon Valley, actually, when you think about the use of software for pay-as-you-go solar service businesses or for grid integration. The blockchain is being used by companies like Sun Exchange to finance the deployment of projects that would not be big enough for traditional project finance. Um, There's a lot of really creative entrepreneurs busting out the conventional model to leapfrog, particularly in these countries that don't have conventional electricity and the incumbency to challenge them. Uh, But also, you know, China obviously is doing incredible work transitioning its grid to clean energy and its vehicle base to electric vehicles, you know, and there's startups I could mention from, you know, Mobike, which I believe with the dockless bike sharing model will change the course of human history and how we move one to three kilometers in range, you know, it'll no longer be bipedal, it'll be scooters and bikes. And similarly, you know, Encota, an incredible Chinese American company that does uh, sort of AI and optimization of the state grid in China using machine learning technologies and computer science out of the states. You know, that's the stuff we want to bring to bear and then scale and accelerate. The UN found earlier this year that we're going well with the energy transition, but it needs to go six times faster. Hence the Speedwell call to action. So to the Speedwell call of action, what happens uh, if you're successful? What will we see? So, for example, at COP24, uh, in, in Katowice, Poland in December or anything in the next year or two. What, what's the success story here? We're building on a statement that was promulgated in Paris called the Climate Solvers Statement that the World Wildlife Fund, which is one of our network partners with this, helped put out. And, you know, there it was 150 companies. Here we want 1,000 companies signed on, entrepreneurs. And really we're building a base. We're building a constituency for this turn of the corner from climate problems and obsessing about you know, counting the carbon and offsetting and all that stuff that you and Greenbiz and so on have covered for so long and get onto the game of driving solutions. And that's what the rest of history will actually be about. And we're the people that are actually going to deliver that. And the names that you haven't heard of today will be household brands tomorrow as we shift into this amazing opportunity space and the the blue ocean of $120 trillion of value creation, which is what the Paris agreement actually commits us to. Billions of dollars in every country, trillions annually. That's what needs to be created and spent in order to create this energy transition. At the Speedwell Call to Action, you can find a link to it in Danny's story this week, which is called A Call to Action to Clean Economy Entrepreneurs. Danny Kennedy is Managing Director of the California Clean Energy Fund and co-founder and president of New Energy Nexus. Thanks for stopping by, Danny. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Conference Board is one of the oldest business leadership organizations in the United States. Founded in 1916 
by a group of CEOs concerned about the impact of workplace issues on business. More recently, the association has become concerned with issues of sustainability. In June, the company's research team released the first in a two-phase research initiative focused on the emerging practice of what it calls total impact valuation. Joining GreenBiz 350 to talk about the first phase of the report, as well as some of the findings, is Thomas Singer, Principal Researcher in Corporate Leadership for the Conference Board. And here are some of his insights. This concept is not all that new. You know, we've seen uh, evolutions of it. So I think we can trace it back probably, um, I'd say, to about 1990 with uh, Dutch company BSO Origin and their attempt at environmental accounting. A decade later, Puma came out with their environmental profit and loss statement, the EPNL. A number of companies have since released EPNLs. But what we're looking at, you know, this, this sort of concept of total impact valuation goes a step further to include not only the environmental impacts, but also the social impacts and the economic impacts. There's this increasing recognition that uh, many of these impacts, the social ones, the environmental ones, and some of the economic ones as well, are actually not being accounted for in traditional forms of accounting. Like, you know, the income statement, uh, for example, ignores some pretty important ways that companies create value and also important ways that they erode value. Um, you know, if we look at how they create value, things such as employee training spend, that, that would fall under one of those social metrics. So the amount of, of uh, investment that companies are making in, in training their employees and what that does for those employees in the future, um, you know, whether they remain at that same company or whether they, they move on to a different company in the future. It also includes things like community development. So investments in, in community infrastructure, sanitation projects, for example, education projects, on the environmental side, it would include um, the, the impacts associated with, with waste, um, with emissions, air pollution, um, land usage, for instance. And that can be a, a positive and a negative one as well. So, for instance, when, when we think of land usage, the conversion of land into, into factories, into buildings, into infrastructure. But then also you can think of uh, taking land that has already been converted and returning it back to its kind of natural state, if you wish. So we see both sides of how companies are, are, are creating impacts, you know, both on kind of the positive end, but also on the negative end. And you can think of, um, even on, on the CO2 side, greenhouse gas emissions, there are examples of, of accounting for the negative value of CO2 emissions, but then there are also some examples of how companies account for a positive value through carbon sequestration. Um, for instance. Another, and you were looking at some social impacts, another important one, of course, is uh, workplace accidents and fatalities to the extent that um, you know, companies are accounting for, for accidents and fatalities as part of their total societal impact and assigning a, a price to those accidents and fatalities. Of the examples that we found of, of companies that are currently working on these types of exercises, on average, they track about 18 uh, different impacts or indicators, if you wish. Um, on average, about 18. Some of them look at more than 30. Um, the most commonly monetized impacts or indicators would be uh, things such as CO2 emissions, 
and water uh, consumption on the environmental side. On the social side, we see things such as, again, employee education and training, um, how much companies are spending on that, uh, accidents, lost time, injuries. Um, and we also see on the economic side, for instance, taxes paid, the tax contributions to government, um, payroll, so for instance, the wages and benefits and the impact associated with those. Just to give you a, paint a little bit of a picture of so the types of impacts that companies are, are monetizing, quantifying and monetizing. There's quite a bit of activity around you know, total impact valuation, at least behind the scenes. There's, there's a lot of activity. There's a number of companies that are involved in you know, roundtables or other kind of working groups to try to understand what this is, how to go about it, how to standardize methodologies, uh, hundreds, hundreds of companies. But then when it comes to those that are actually out there publicly with, with their own methodologies, um, with quantitative results of their exercises, you know, the numbers are, are much fewer. So we saw about, um, you know, about 14 companies. There, there are a few others out there as well, but we looked at about 14 um, that are out there publicly with some of the results of their own calculations. And I would say that in most cases, the reasons companies are involved in this um, is really twofold. One is uh, to aid in the development of their own internal strategies. So identifying what are those hot spots, uh, where are the biggest areas of impact for the organization. Um, and, you know, some of that can be achieved, of course, through or a materiality analysis gets at that. What are the biggest issues that we should be concerned about as a company? But then once you start quantifying and monetizing those impacts, you get a really good sense as to you know where uh, the biggest impacts really are, and that kind of that helps a company understand whether its resources are being allocated in the right places. So to guide internal strategy is one of the reasons we see we see companies mostly involved in this. The other one, of course, is as another avenue of, of transparency and communication with, with stakeholders. Um, you know, stakeholders are interested in understanding where a company's impacts are and whether they are managing those impacts. And this gives them a pretty clear and easy to read understanding of, of what those impacts are and where they lie. Um, and, and if you look at some of the examples of the companies that are, that are doing this, including you know, the BASFs, of the world, um, Lafarge Wholesome, for instance, um, the Crown Estate, Argos. Uh, these are just some examples of large organizations and important organizations that are involved here. And you can kind of understand where those impacts are. And that's what really gets them motivated to, to do this. Um, again, the increased pressure from stakeholders, but also as a strategy tool internally. But it is complicated. It is not easy. Uh, it's, a, it's a practice that is riddled with, with issues, methodological issues. Um, it is murky and it is very much at an embryonic stage. So you can, you can imagine based on all those words that I just used that uh, some companies would be hesitant to embark on this. Uh, it, takes, it takes quite a bit of work if you do it well. Uh, and by that I mean time and, and resources. Um, it can, be, it can be expensive uh, because of the time and, and the resources needed. And the results can always be a little bit um, uh, you know, unclear at first, especially since there are so many differences in, in methodologies at this point that you know, how do you really compare your, your results to the results of another company? So I think for these reasons, 
some some companies are kind of on the sidelines at this point. They're kind of involved in many of these roundtables and working groups to understand this practice and 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 perhaps wait until the methodologies are have converged a little bit more, um, and and therefore a little bit more reluctant to come out publicly with their own results. So I would say that that is one of the the reasons not as many companies are involved in this as as perhaps we would uh, like to see. And that's a wrap. That's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization, stories and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're over there, check out the link to our other podcast called Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can hit us up by email, 350 at greenbiz.com is our email address, and we always love to hear from you. GreenBiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our managing editor. Heather will be off next week on a well-earned holiday, but I'll be back next week with senior writer Katie Fehrenbacher, co-host another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. 